I'm Evan Smith of the Texas Tribune, and this is Point of Order, a podcast about the ins and outs, the ups and downs, the people and politics and traditions of the 87th Texas Legislature. This week, left out. It is, to put it kindly, a challenging moment to be a Texas Democrat. After two years of conversations around the comeback of Team Blue, the 2020 elections turned out to be a great big nothing. Yeah, Joe Biden won the White House, but he lost Texas by nearly six points. Even if that's the closest presidential election in the state in more than 20 years, it was nothing like the dead heat that pollsters and prognosticators and pundits predicted up through and including November 3rd. The fan fiction plotline of a political shift extended to competitive congressional seats, which ultimately did not change parties. And the big prize, the takeover of the Texas House reduced to defeating the one Republican, Sarah Davis, who could be counted on to vote on social issues like Nelson Rockefeller. So no Democratic speaker, no Democratic agenda, no Democratic hands on redistricting maps. 2021 has been more of the same for Texas Dems as what was presumed to be the refined palate of a mid-pandemic session has given way to a ravenous appetite for base-pleasing GOP favorites, including abortion and voting restrictions, permitless carry of handguns, a ban on transgender athletes, a middle finger to social media companies, and an embrace of the national anthem rivaling Donald Trump's flag hug at CPAC. Unlike other GOP-majority Texas legislatures of late, this one does not seem to have a natural choke point for these so-called sharp objects on the table. No committee chairs named for the purpose of slow-rolling controversy. No presiding officer in keep-the-peace mode. To make matters worse, only one party's fans and friends are rallying, testifying, and meeting with members. And it ain't the Democrats. As State Representative Gina Hinojosa of Austin, a progressive champion, tweeted in late March, our people aren't showing up at the Capitol for hearings due to COVID. The far right is outflanking us 10 to 1 on issues the vast majority of Texans stand with us on. Don't know what the answer is, but full disclosure, it's hurting. Another Democratic lawmaker concerned about the unrestrained sprint to pass what she considers bad bills texted me recently, it's going to be worse than any of us thought. Hashtag turds with legs. This week's guests, State Representative Chris Turner of Grand Prairie and State Senator Carol Alvarado of Houston are tasked with what might be called a salvage mission for their party. The chairs, respectively, of the Democratic caucuses of the Texas House and Texas Senate know that time in the 87th is fast running out. But they're working hard to keep their troops engaged as they told me on the afternoon of Monday, April 5th, day 84 of the 140. Point of Order is supported by Secure Democracy, working to defend the freedom to vote for seniors, veterans, rural voters, and all Texans. Visit www.secure-democracy.org. And by the Keep Texas Trucking Coalition, urging Texas lawmakers to support HB 19 to protect Texas jobs and small businesses from abusive lawsuits against commercial vehicles. 
Learn more at keeptexastrucking.com. And move Texas. As lawmakers, business leaders, and voters are speaking out, Texas has become ground zero in the fight for voting rights. MoveTexas.org. And Methodist Healthcare Ministries of South Texas, dedicated to creating access to healthcare for uninsured and low-income families in South Texas through healthcare services, advocacy, and strategic grant making. And Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas, proud to support this conversation because public dialogue and civic engagement are important and play a role in improving the health of Texas. So which one of you had aligning politically with corporate America on your 2021 bingo card? (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't even thinking about that. My mind was on, you know, very uh, significant things dealing with the pandemic and ERCOT and the budget and expansion of Medicaid. So that's where I was. Yeah. It's not, don't take this the wrong way, Chairman Turner. You don't seem like corporate America a type to me. You don't seem like, uh, you know, the, the Dell people and the Microsoft American Airlines, that these people are rushing to embrace the Democrats. But suddenly <laughs> you guys find yourselves strange bedfellows, right? Well, you know, I, I think that, you know, Evan, you know, there, there have been a number of issues where, you know, the business community uh, in general ha- has increasingly aligned with, with, mm-hmm. with Democrats on state issues. You know, Medicaid expansion comes to mind. Senator right. Alvarado just mentioned, uh, you know, the business community has been leading on that issue for several years now. And I think what's happening right now is, you know, the business community is being responsive to their customers and, and businesses don't want to be seen as uh, out of step with the values of the American people and, and supporting uh, causes or, or politicians who are advancing causes to their customers' detriment. And I think that's what's happening on these voting bills. And that's why you're seeing uh, corporate America speak up. And I think it's great. Uh, we saw it before, yeah. too. I mean, we yeah. saw it before with SB6, the bathroom bill. We saw it with, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, SB6, the bathroom bill. And then to some extent, SB4, uh, a time before that, where a lot of the construction industry and others have weighed in. So this is not the first time we've seen it. Yeah. Well, of course, I, you, you point out a couple of uh, bills uh, that actually haven't, uh, uh, the, the effect of big business being involved in the conversation hasn't necessarily mm-hmm. moved the needle. Now, the bathroom bill, you could argue, okay, fine. I mean, I just wonder if the objections of biz, big, big, big business matter, right? Um, d- will big business ultimately affect the outcome of this discussion on, on voting? Would You mentioned Senator Alvarado Medicaid expansion. Does big, does big business matter on that? It doesn't seem like the legislature wants to be told, or this legislature wants to be told what to do by Dell or Microsoft or American Airlines any more than by Joe Biden or Beto O'Rourke or Stacey Abrams. Yeah, but I think there are some of us that that do care what uh, you know these corporate folks have to say because they are doing business in our state. Some of them are um, receiving benefits, whether it's, you know, tax breaks or other types of incentives to be here. So I, I think, you know, it's, it kind of, you know, it, it depends on, on what the issue is, but I think that um, they feel a, a sense of responsibility, as Chairman Turner said, they're, um, you know, listening to their customers and people who, who pay their bills. 
Uh, I agree. What can I just add that that I I think that it was a real inflection point, uh, what happened on January 6th. And you saw after that insurrection, you saw uh, at the federal level, corporations uh, and their PACs pulling support from members of Congress who uh, helped uh, fuel the big lie that somehow Donald Trump had, had, had really won the election that he actually lost. And, and I think this is an outgrowth of that. I think that, I think that there's a real sense that a democracy is being threatened in a way that it hasn't been before, and, and it's incumbent on everyone to speak up. And I think that's what's happened here. Yeah, yeah. But of course, some of those same corporations that initially said they were pulling back from making contributions to people who enabled or at least uh, stood by idly on January 6th have gone back and started making contributions to them quietly. I mean, in the end, isn't it in the interest, Chairman Turner, of the business community to support the people in power? Because ultimately, then they get the wrong end of the stick at moments like this. Well, I think that's exactly right, and because that's usually the way uh, business approaches uh, government and politics, which which is what I think makes it all the more significant that they are speaking out right now, uh, yeah. because typically business doesn't do that. So, Senator Alvarado, you voted against SB seven, did you not? Yeah, absolutely, and yeah. debated on it too. Can, yeah. can you explain exactly what it is about that legislation that you object to? Well, it, there's no basis for it. There, there was no substantive uh, evidence of any type of fraud. Uh, I think this is part of a, a national wave by Republicans to suppress voters and votes. And if you listen to the back and forth, no matter you know which Democrat was asking questions, there just really wasn't any any strong evidence of a reason why you needed this. And we all kept saying, you know, this is a solution in search of a problem. We, we spent a lot of time on it when there are so many other things that we could have been taking up uh, well into, you know, 2.30 in the morning. And it, none of their arguments made any sense. They're taking away local control from counties. And the, for example, taking away the drive up drive-through voting in Harris County, they made that seem as if that somehow was an illegal thing that was done when in fact it's not. It's voting in person, but you're, you know, you're voting in a car, not walking into a place. And all these things were done during in a very unusual circumstance in a pandemic. And we tried to get them to make a, take an amendment to, okay, well, what if you have this just during a pandemic um, and then shortening the hours? Again, no substantive uh, evidence, background, no foundation for any type of legislation yeah. like this. Yeah, Chairman, that's, that's the question that I have just on the outside, somebody who pays attention to this stuff, or all the talk of election integrity. I haven't seen much proof of lack of integrity in a way that would tell me that this is about anything other than what you and other critics of this legislation have said, that it's about suppressing Turnout. Now, I know people who support this insist it's not about that, but my question would be, have you seen any proof of voter fraud or lack of integrity that would justify this? No, I haven't. And the proponents of these bills uh, can't point to any. In fact, you know, the governor was asked in, in a press conference a few weeks ago, uh, you know, Governor, what, what, is there some evidence of, of voter fraud in the 2020 election that, that you're trying to solve with, with these bills? He said, well, no, we haven't seen any of that yet. But, you know, that doesn't mean it didn't happen. Well, but there might be some, but there might be some. 
Right. That, 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 that seems to be, that seems to be the rationale for the, for this legislation. And, yeah. and that, that's, that, that's not a, that's not a good reason to pass vote suppression bills. Yeah. I, I saw your colleague, Kyle Casal, a Republican this morning on local TV in his district said the following, I don't know if the measures that are being talked about are necessary. I don't know how much fraud there really is, but people need the opportunity to vote. And then he cast doubt on the passage of Senate Bill 7 as it comes over to the House. He said, we're getting closer to a bill that I think the entire House could come to vote for. Of course, obviously, that's going to look completely different from the Senate version. Guy better watch out. He's going to end up in timeout. His need for saying something like that. Well, I, I don't know. I, I'm I'm glad he is expressing reservations about it. I, I think and I think a lot of members uh, of the House, you know, know that these these bills aren't necessary. And and, and look, I mean, what is this taking? What, what's the backdrop? All this is taking place against. It's it's a pandemic that's killed forty seven thousand Texans. It's mm-hmm. a a winter storm that left millions without power and water for days and killed two hundred. Uh, plus Texans, uh, we have real problems that we have to solve here in these next eight weeks. And, and these bills are simply a distraction from the important work we should be doing. Right. Senator Alvarado, this is, here's another Republican I want to quote uh, 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 in asking you a version of that same question. You know, uh, okay. Glenn Whitley, who is the county judge in Tarrant County, which although it voted for Joe Biden last time, nominally, and voted for um, Beto O'Rourke in 2018, this is still mm-hmm. the most conservative large county in the country. Um, I mean, I think to Chairman Turner's point, it's amazing how much time and energy are being devoted to this, given the stuff that's pressing. Here was Judge Whitley over the weekend to the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. We're in the middle of a pandemic. We've had problems with our electric grid, and they're screwing around with how many machines we can have in a polling place. He, Mm -hmm. at least, is not buying the need for this as a pressing item. Well, and I think he's, he's right on. And as I said earlier, they're taking away local control not allowing individual counties to make decisions about the type of voting that they want, whether it's you know, drive-through during a pandemic or extending hours. But and the, this, the formula that they're trying to come up with for the number of polling places, which I pointed out, and this is so blatant, and this is what really irritates me. It's just that it's, it's so in your face that they're using, they're using the number of I think it was a registered voters first. And under that, if you look at Harris County, all the African-American and Latino or Asian representatives, Democrats, lose a good number of polling locations. Meanwhile, the Republican Anglo representatives gain polling locations. And even after... Senator Hughes amended it and came up with uh, his committee substitute that had eligible voters. You still had 14 districts that would lose polling locations. And of those 14, two were only Republican and the other 12 were Democrats. So, I, I mean, who You, who you think you really this, is not, this is not an accident? You think this is not an no, accident? I, I mean, I, I pointed it out, and he hadn't calculated it, you know, what, what the impact would be. And that's, right. that's kind of what we see. Is you're not, they're not looking at the consequences. And so I read it off there, you know, at yeah. 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning and, and said, who are you really targeting here? Uh, uh, Ch- Chairman, you know, is it possible that you guys have this bill wrong? 
Um, I read in the New York Times this weekend, uh, Nate Cohn's column about the Georgia bill, which I understand is not the Texas bill, but his point was that these kinds of bills don't necessarily have the negative effect on turnout or access that some people argue. He says, you know, you're condemning these kinds of bills as voter suppression, or even you're comparing them to Jim Crow. But the reality is that you don't know that these provisions will affect turnout or Democratic chances at election time in the negative. In fact, they could increase turnout. Are you willing to accept the possibility that you're wrong here? Well, here's what I do know. I, I, I know that this is a solution in search of a problem, uh, as we've already established, because there's no vote fraud that anyone can point to. Um, I, I know that leading uh, civil rights organizations, such as the NAACP, MALDEF, and others have, have testified against these bills uh, because they believe that they will be suppressive uh, to Texans, particularly Texans of color. Um, I know that Texas has a long history of enacting legislation that has made it harder for uh, Texans of color to vote. And, and federal courts have re repeatedly found Texas voting laws and redistricting laws to be intentionally discriminatory against African-Americans and Hispanics. Uh, and I know uh, that it, at least in, in the House hearing, uh, when, when the bill author and bill proponents were asked, you know, did, did you do an analysis to, to understand how these, uh, these changes would impact communities of color? Uh, the answer is no such analysis has been done. Um, yeah. So, so I, I think all that points to a very problematic picture for these bills. Right. And of course, you, but you know, the problem though, uh, uh, chairman, Senator is, so SB seven passes HB six, one imagines that the votes are, are there just cause I could do math. Right. Mm -hmm. This is really why I wanted to talk to the two of you as chairs of the caucus. The conventional wisdom has shifted from the beginning of the session to now. At the start of the year, it was limited bandwidth. We'll have fewer bills considered. Mm -hmm. We'll focus on the core business of the state and we'll get out. Sometime over the next uh, last couple of months, pardon me, it's gone to there's plenty of time to pass bills that frankly couldn't get through even in a normal session. There's zero problem at all putting controversial legislation on track, even at the expense of core business. And now your Democratic colleagues are fearing this is going to be a full-on Republican route. Senator Alvarado, what happened to this session? It was going to be not something to be concerned about for your side. Now people on your side are hair on fire about it. Well, I, like I said earlier, Evan, this is part of a national move by the Republicans. Uh, you know, we, it's, it's, stems from everything going on in Washington. And, um, you know, they are grasping, grasping for something to try to change the outcome. Uh, they, they tried it with lawsuits and all sorts of things to overturn the presidential election. Well, that didn't work because there was nothing there. And so now they're um, going to the legislatures where they have a lot of control in, in many states. Everything about that bill targets minorities, people of color, and the disabled and the elderly. So this is, this is just part of a, a bigger effort. And they know that Texas is, is easy pickings. This is low-hanging fruit for them because of our history. And they know um, that they've got leadership here who will push these bills forward with no foundation and not thinking through. There's a pattern here. If you just, if you listen to debates and you ask them, you can tell, I mean, we've done our homework on our side 
And to ha hear Bill Lauder say, well, I hadn't looked at that, or I, I don't know, I'm not sure about that. Right, but, but Ch Chairman, as you know, though, I mean, Senator Alvarado is right that this voting bill may be, or voting legislation may be directed at what just happened in the election, but it's hardly only this legislation. There's a whole bunch of bills, whether it's the abortion uh, 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 bills that have, uh, have passed, or it's the permitless carry. We'll talk about both of those here, hopefully in a second, or and anything else. I mean, it's not as if all your Democrats in the House in your caucus are not marching in the same direction, or almost all of them. It's not as if the Senate Democrats are not almost all marching in the same direction. You're holding your caucuses together, but you just don't have the votes to prevent this stuff. The election season wasn't what you hoped it would be. And so you don't have the numbers to hold off the other side and they can just get their agenda through, right? Yeah, well, let, let me first agree with something Carol just said, uh, and she understated it about Senate Democrats doing their homework. Uh, Senate Democrats were, were magnificent in, in that floor debate on SB7. I'm just so proud of, of, of all of them uh, and how hard they fought on that. And, you know, I think to your question, Evan, um, you know, I've, I've been, this is my sixth term in the Texas House, and every session I've been here, there has been uh, at least one bill, usually more, uh, attacking a woman's right to choose. There has generally been at least one bill, often more, uh, under the auspices of expanding Second Amendment rights. Uh, and, and this is what Republicans do. They have, uh, I think, have become just increasingly uh, radicalized over the last several years, uh, particularly in the Trump era, where they just move further and further and further to the right. Uh, and at some point, it is going to catch up with them with the electorate, particularly as this state becomes increasingly competitive in November elections. And so they do it at their own peril. And they do it to continue to try to satiate a base uh, in their primary elections that can never be satiated. It simply can never be satiated, but they're not willing to tell them no. So they continue to do this stuff, and it's going to cost them in the end in the general election. Uh, and, and, and so that's, that, that's the dynamic we find ourselves in uh, as long as they have, have the majority. Of course, I hear you say that it's going to cost them in the end, but if ever it was going to cost them in the end, wouldn't it have cost them in the last election? You all had the best shot in a generation to get back in the conversation, to take back control of the House, to win congressional seats. You had the presidential race up until the last day was a dead heat. And in the end, it didn't happen. I guess, I guess what I'm saying is maybe, maybe they think to themselves, it'll catch us in the end, but there's no evidence that it will. And so they, if, if I'm following your logic, they'll just continue mm -hmm. indefinitely. Senator Alvarado, I mean, that's the thing. If elections yeah. don't have consequences, why do anything different? Well, I think if you look at what we accomplished last session, and this, this is a good example, because we focused on things like education, passed a remarkable, you know, huge bill on education, HB3. Yeah. And so those were the issues that made the headlines. And it wasn't a lot of this other stuff. So they knew that from the previous elections in, in 2018, that they had to kind of step back away from some of that. That's not to say that we didn't have those bills come up, but in last session, we had, you know, we passed a, you know, pretty good budget, the uh, large investment in education. And so I think that they took that home. And, and meanwhile, all of us on the, our side of the aisle, these are things like that included universal uh, free all day pre-K. We've been advocating for that for at least, you know, a decade or two. And 
then as you know voters the uh, landscape starts to change then all of a sudden they came on board with things that had been so partisan so that's what they took home and said see what we did see what we brought home and that's harder to do when all you're you're coming home and, and talking about you know how you you suppressed um, women and uh, minorities. So I, I don't know. I, I think it'll have a, an impact on the the upcoming 2022 elections in in districts. I don't know about you know statewide. I don't, we'll have to see how all that plays out. Yeah, uh, Chairman Turner, I I read a tweet by Representative Gina Hinojosa, your Democratic colleague, a couple of weeks ago, concerned that part of the problem this session has been that her side, your side, the progressive side has been largely standing down because of the public health emergency. For the sake of good health and the pandemic, they've not wanted to spend more time than necessary in the Capitol or hearing rooms or mass, or mass gatherings in Austin. But the other side has actually got no hesitation to do that. And so her concern was, we're not really showing up in equal numbers for the fight. We're not actually making our case as aggressively as we need to. We may be doing it for a good reason, but in the end, the fight is not fair, and we're losing as a consequence of that. Do you do you buy that, that that's a problem this session? Well, I think Representative Hinojosa raises a, a good point in, in that, um, you know, COVID-19 is, is still very much here. And and you know, there are people who who are concerned about it, rightfully. Uh, and, and so I think particularly after the governor uh, repealed the mask order, uh, and masks are no longer required in the Capitol, although they are still supposed to be required in House committee hearing rooms. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I have no doubt that that keeps some people away. I will say, um, with respect to uh, the elections committee meeting last week, uh, it seemed to me that uh, that the testimony was was pretty balanced. There were you know, people who stayed until five five thirty in the morning to testify against that bill. So. Uh, so I think that people, you know, certainly made their voices heard. You didn't see bill, any problem on that bill where your side didn't show up. Your side showed up just fine. I, I, I think our, I, I think a lot of people showed up to, to testify against that bill, which is why the hearing lasted till uh, nearly sunrise the next day. Uh, but I think the point is well taken. No doubt there are some people who would otherwise come to the Capitol who are not coming because of the pandemic. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you think, uh, Chairman, that uh, uh, the new speaker, Dade Phelan, has been uh, uh, open to uh, the voices of Democratic legislators, Democratic chairs? Do you think the business of the House is being conducted in a way where you feel you're being treated fairly? Compare him in that respect, if you would, to Dennis Bonin and to Joe Strauss, the two speakers who preceded him. Are you getting a, fa a fair shake this time? Well, um, you know, I think that's a, a bit of a hard question to answer because we're only, you know, a few weeks into Speaker Phelan's speakership. Uh, and in terms of- Well, it's halfway through uh, the session. I mean, it is halfway well, through. We are halfway through the session in terms of actually legislation moving through the House. We're, we're at the very early stages of that. We've only had, you know, House floor calendars now for, for two weeks. But so what I would say is this, um, is I think that the, the Speaker, you know, continued the bipartisan tradition of uh, appointing uh, committee chairs from both parties, uh, as as Strauss and Bonin did before him, I, I think that as we've seen, you know, in these initial House floor calendars, uh, again, just you know, uh, not a not a huge sample size so far, but I think we've seen a number of Democratic members have bills uh, on the floor and pass out of the House. Uh, I think we've saw, uh, you know, last week when 
we we heard some priority bills related to the blackout. Uh, there were Democratic bills in that mix, including by Representative Hernandez and uh, Representative Raymond. Um, so I think that's all. Th those are all good signs. I think that if if he maintains that sort of uh, bipartisan involvement, uh, like I just described, I think that's a I think that's a good sign. I think if if the House shifts into prioritizing some of these partisan hot button issues that we've been discussing the last few minutes, uh, I think that's not a good sign, and and that's when and, that, and that's when it creates problems within the within the House chamber. In the Strauss uh, so, era, Chairman Turner, you remember in the Strauss era that some of that stuff, that was those sharp objects on the table, would never have actually made it to the floor. Now, people always saw conspiracies in that. Well, Strauss was actually working with the Democrats to kill that stuff. The reality is some stuff got through, but you had a, a chokehold or a, va a valve almost that would close before it actually got to someplace. Do you have any sense that Speaker Phelan will be the same valve that uh, Speaker Strauss might have been uh, two speakerships ago? Well, I think that every speaker uh, that I've served under, so this is now my third, um, has uh, has that valve on something, and it becomes clear uh, down the road what that is. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know what that is right now, but yeah, I mean, to you know, I have tremendous respect for Speaker Strauss, but clearly, a lot of stuff that that Democrats hated and fought hard against, yeah, made to the House floor and made it out of the House into law. Uh, SB4 comes to mind, and there's plenty of other examples too. So, right. so I think that's not unique to, to any speaker. I, I think in, in each speakership, some things pass that we uh, don't like and, and some things die that we're happy to see die. Um, and I think it remains to be seen how that's going to play out over the next eight weeks. Uh, Senator Alvarado, let me ask you a version of the same question about the lieutenant governor. We began the session with the lieutenant governor orchestrating a rules change, having lost one Republican seat. So taking the majority down from 19 to 18, now all of a sudden it only required 18 votes to bring a bill up on the floor. A lot of us on the outside thought, well, of course, this is what happens. Lieutenant governor's got his hand on this. He just wants to be sure that the Democrats don't have the ability to stop anything. Um, I wonder if you view his leadership of the Senate in this way as uh, sufficiently respectful of the minority party's wishes. Are you getting a fair shake from the Lieutenant Governor this session? Well, there, there's not, we don't really have a valve like y'all, like they have in the house. Things are just sort of spewing out. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, uh, there's been a couple other changes besides the rules change. Are there only three Democrats now on finance? Um, so, we saw some shift there. Um, you know, the at one point in the evening the other night when we were debating, there was there was a little effort to try to maybe work something out, and then that didn't happen. So I think on ERCOT, we've seen a lot of attention. He's, he's given a lot of, of attention to what Democrats want on that. Um, but, you know, it's pretty divisive. It's very partisan on all the other issues. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So let me ask you about a couple of other issues that I've alluded to. We haven't actually talked through, but I want to I want to talk about as, as emblematic maybe of where this session may be heading. The abortion legislation, Senator Alvarado, which I know you care enormously about mm -hmm. this sort of thing, as Chairman Turner says, comes up every session or at least it has mm -hmm. for the last few but it seems to have gotten more traction so far or more traction on a faster timetable than we're used to. Senate Bill 8 would ban abortions after a fetal heartbeat has been detected, which can be as early as six weeks. 
Mm -hmm. Senate. Nine would bar nearly all abortions if the U.S. Supreme Court overturns Roe versus Wade or otherwise alters those laws. Both of these were priority bills in the Senate per lieutenant governor, and they did, in fact, speed to passage. Are you surprised? Can anything be no. done on your side? I mean, this is kind of the world we're living in, right? Yeah, I don't. I mean, we we put our best foot forward. We debated the issues. Um, you know, I was really bothered by the SB nine because it criminalizes providers. And yeah. you know, we have we have three physicians, three doctors on the floor, and I just again no basis for it. Uh, in fact, I said, you know, if what I'm saying sounds familiar, it's probably something I said last, last session or the session before that or before that, because every session, this is what we're talking about. And I mean, I just, I keep a, a speech, just a template of a speech on abortion in my top drawer, just ready to whip out every session because it's, it's on the table, but you're right, Evan, it, it did come up earlier. And I, I'm uh, um, guessing that it did because, you know, as you get towards the end, things can happen right. and, and you don't want to risk getting a delay, it getting over to the house. And so I'm guessing this is this was the strategy just to get it out quickly to make sure that it's there's no excuse for any type of failure. And Chairman uh, Turner, there are 83 Republicans in the House. Do you see any holdup to these bills? Again, it feels like a math problem. If you're uh, opposed to this legislation, it comes over to the House. You don't have the votes to prevent it. Sure. Well, you know, anything that's a straight party line vote, uh, you know, Republicans are going to win. Uh, so, you know, we have to we have to look at every tool in our toolbox. Um, and so there's, you know, procedural tools, there's, you know, uh, amendment tools and 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 there's a lot of other things that come into play. But as I said earlier, uh, you know, every session I've been here, there's been some attack on a woman's right choose and and uh, I, I expect the session to be no different uh, because what, what what seems evident it, it, just like the uh, elections bills which is part of a national Republican drive to pass these laws um, with respect to abortion it's, it's this competition between red states as to who can get their uh, terrible law uh, into the into the courts uh, the fastest and and be the be, be a test case to, to further, erode Roe v. Wade, which is, which is their goal. And so, um, you know, if you see other states doing it, you, know, you can bet Republicans in Texas are going to try to do it as well. And we're going to do our best to try to stop them. So a version of that same question on constitutional carry, permitless carry, Chairman Turner, the issue was heard in Chairman White's committee, Homeland Security and Public Safety, a little less than two weeks ago. It was one of those overnight deals, if I understand. I'm sorry I was getting my beauty sleep. I didn't watch the <laughs> hearing, but I'm aware of what happened. The chairman has made his position clear. The votes are there on the committee. I believe the speaker has indicated that he is supportive of this, if not this session, then in his comments in previous times that this has come up. Again, what stops the forward momentum on this? The Democrats just have to eat it on this legislation. Well, you know, Democrats are, are fighting for common sense gun safety measures. And, and so, you know, our members have, have filed bills to close the, the background check loophole, for instance, uh, you know, which is something that, that, you know, less than two years ago, the lieutenant governor said was a priority of his to, to do. And we haven't heard as much about that recently. Uh, so, so we want to implore our Republican colleagues uh, to remember the reaction all had after El Paso and after Odessa. And this is the first time we were in session since those two 
heinous tragedies that occurred in our state. Uh, work with us to do something to make our state safer from the, the threat of gun violence. And, uh, and, but if, if the only thing this legislature did uh, in the first session since those two tragedies uh, is, is pass a uh, permitless carry bill, that would be such a slap in the face to millions of Texans. Uh, uh, Senator Alvarado, at least the Senate has already decided what to do on this, right? I mean, you, you, know, you know where this is heading. Yeah, and I agree with, uh, with Chairman Turner. It's a slap in the face, and I am uh, hopeful that this is one of those issues where you see a, a groundswell of, of reaction from the public. I mean, we've had, uh, not just this time, but at other sessions, you know, police, law enforcement to, um, to step up and testify against it. So, you know, it's, the numbers are not on our side, but we have to, you know, put our best foot forward and hope that the public engages on this. Again, misplaced priority. This does absolutely nothing to grow our economy, to create jobs. Absolutely nothing. Uh, Senator, you mentioned the bathroom bill earlier, uh, kind of hearkening back to a previous session. The bill banning transgender women from playing on women's school sports teams is being described as this session's bathroom bill. The, the difference seems to be that the bathroom bill was more, it was more daunting in terms of getting it passed, right? For the supporters of it, they knew mm -hmm. that there were a number of big hurdles to climb. Am I wrong to think that there hasn't been so much outcry this time I mean, if, if, if I'm a supporter of that legislation, don't I think similar to the other stuff we've talked about so far, better chance than not of it getting passed? Yeah, this this bill, I mean, it's kind of been more of an insider's game. I, I, that's the way I see it. There just hasn't been a whole lot of hype on it uh, in the media and publicly, like the election bills or the abortion bills. So, or even um, the bathroom bill going back a couple sessions. Oh, yeah. Agree yeah. That the profile of this trans right. uh, women's sports bill is nothing like the bathroom bill profile from a couple sessions ago. Ab absolutely. And that's when you saw, as I mentioned earlier, you know, corporate America get involved and, and help to kill it. So we, yep. we just haven't seen that, that hype yet. Yeah. Uh, Chair Chairman Turner, let me ask you about Medicaid expansion, which again, Senator Alvarado mentioned earlier is something, you know, that, that is a, a, a potential topic of conversation in a legislature that has the bandwidth and the interest in, in discussing it. And of course, coming out of a pandemic, given the costs that have been incurred on healthcare and given the number of people who just because of, of losing their jobs over the last year now suddenly don't have access to insurance coverage, you might think that Medicaid expansion would be something that everybody could potentially find common ground on. The Wall Street Journal this weekend, in fact, reported that some Republican states that had previously declined to expand Medicaid before are now reconsidering that decision given the passage of the $1.9 trillion pandemic relief package, which has made billions of dollars available to enlarge the program. The availability of more federal funds is putting pressure on Republican leaders of some of the 12 states that haven't expanded Medicaid to date, which would include Texas, where one of those 12 states, we would apparently get nearly $4 billion over two years According to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, we would reduce the uninsured roles in Texas by more than two million. But I don't have any sense, Chairman Turner, that that conversation, wherever else it may be happening, I don't have a sense it's happening in earnest in Texas, except maybe on your side. Yeah, well, you know, Democrats are continuing to fight hard for Medicaid expansion for all the reasons you just mentioned and many others. 
and it's disgraceful that we're you know one of only 12 states now that has not expanded Medicaid when we have the most to gain of any state in the country because we have the highest rate and number of uninsured. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, the federal government's practically putting a gun to our head saying, you know, we're begging you to take the money uh, and, and by, by sweetening the pot as much as they have, which, which is a pretty sweet pot to begin with, uh, even before the, the Rescue Act passed. Yeah. Um, so it, it, will be, it will be criminal if we do not expand Medicaid this session uh, because we have so much to gain by doing so. We can help our people be healthier, live longer, we can boost our economy and we can help our state budget. It's a win, 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 win. And we need to do it now. And you're not hearing, though, just so I'm clear, Chairman Turner, you're not hearing any discussions behind the scenes that those of us out here in the civilian world are not aware of. Right. I, I'm, I'm not wrong to think that the progress inside the building is not is not really happening on this issue. Well, I can tell you that the Democrats in the, in the House are continuing to advocate every day for Medicaid. Yeah, but you can't do it. You can't do it alone. If you don't have Republicans other than Lyle Larson, I don't know of any other Republicans who are potentially going to push this issue. Well, I think I think there's been a, a number of Republicans that have, have signaled some openness to it. Um, yeah. And look, you know, we have a long ways to go here in this session. We, you know, the, the House Appropriations Committee hasn't even voted out a budget yet. So in, in, uh, indeed. There, there's a lot of lot of lot of ball left to play. Right. Senator, same to you. You know, your colleague, Senator Nathan Johnson, who's a leading advocate for expansion, mm -hmm. expansion, insisted to me a few weeks ago, no matter what you hear, no matter what you see, progress is being made behind the scenes. Am I just not aware of it? Are we just not aware of it? I, I have heard a little bit about that. And um, I've heard some folks, uh, you know, talking about that. But I and that was, you know, probably a couple of months ago. But I haven't seen anything come of it. I mean, look, look how many millions of people that are uninsured, not just that, you know, already before the pandemic, but how many lost it during the pandemic. Uh, it's, I, I agree with Chris, it would be criminal if we don't do anything about it. And who knows, maybe if we had uh, health uh, Medicaid expansion, we would have had less people die during the pandemic because they had healthcare coverage and could take care of those pre-existing conditions or get to the doctor sooner. Yeah. Are, are you uh, open to the idea that Chairman Turner alluded to, Senator Alvarado, that with all the additional costs during the last year borne by public and higher ed and healthcare sector, cities and counties, with the cost of the winter storm and weatherization and all the rest, I mean, we know this is setting up to be the most expensive natural disaster in the history of Texas, that we could use whatever money we get our hands on through Medicaid expansion to help with our budget problems, right? That, that, that's what he's saying. We have a budgetary reason to do this. You, you agree with it? Oh, absolutely. It's an economic issue. And, you, and not just for you know those of us that represent urban areas, but think about what it's done to rural parts of Texas and how many hospitals we've seen closed. That's that's something that should be taken into consideration as well. Yeah. Um, so Chairman Turner, what happens in the medium term? I mean, we could talk about other issues, but let's get through this session. So we get through this session. What happens in the medium term for your Democratic colleagues in the House, for Senator Alvarado's Democratic colleagues in the Senate, or for Democrats around the state? You get through this session, and then you hope to change the conversation in the next election cycle. Same song, different verse. Is that it? Is that what has to happen? If you don't get what you need this session, then you need to do this at the ballot box? Sure. Well, I, I think that, you know, every election is, is uh, you know, partly about what happened uh, last session, but it's more so about what, what needs to happen going forward. 
Um, and so, you know, Democrats, uh, we've got to go out in 2022 and we've got to campaign hard for our vision of, of Texas. Um, and it's a, you know, I think it's a vision where we create more opportunity for more Texans and opportunities to go to good schools and get a good education and, and have a, have a healthy, healthy life and have economic opportunity and, and live in a safe community. I mean, that's, that's what we're, that's what we're fighting for. And we need to, we need to show how our ideas are, are, are better uh, than, than the Republicans to, to earn the support of the voters. And in, in 2022, Undoubtedly, we're going to have a, you know, all of our statewide offices up, but, you know, except for U.S. Senate seats. And, and so, you know, I think those those contests will largely drive that conversation, most likely. Yeah. Does it concern you, Senator Alvarado, since we've been, all of us on this call have been around for an, a long enough that we know how this stuff goes. Does it concern you or should it concern you? This is the first midterm in a Democratic administration, right? What happens in the first midterm the president's party typically doesn't do very well in the states. Plus, you have no galvanizing federal race. As Chairman Turner said, no Senate race, no presidential race at the top of the ticket to drive turnout. You remember 2010. Right. Or do you not head into the next election kind of downcast about your prospects? No, I think we, if we look at the things that the Biden administration is working on, whether it's been the stimulus package, the infrastructure uh, pro uh, bill that's still, you know, a process uh, that's still you know, trying to get bipartisan support. And if you look at how the 2020 campaign was impacted because of the pandemic, this is going to be a whole different ballgame. I think what handicapped Democrats was not being out going door to door, and that won't be a problem this time. And I think we'll have some, some good things to show that we have uh, you know, vaccinated more people, that we have tackled uh, the pandemic and that our, we are rebuilding our economy as things open up. So I think we're gonna have a lot of good things to talk about. And the spotlight, unlike in 2020, the spotlight will be on what has taken place this session in the legislature and the leadership of the governor. Okay, so who's your candidate for governor if you get to wave your wand in 2022 for the Democrats? I mean, you've heard, you know, Beto, well, I have no plans to run. Well, actually, I'm still open to the idea of running. I've heard Lena Hidalgo say, I'm focused on reelection. I mean, you've heard a litany of people who might be well-known or known enough around uh, communities or around the state kind of poo-poo the possibility of running. Who's your candidate if you have an opportunity actually heading into 2022? I think we uh, have for Carol. choices. <laughs> Alvarado for governor. Well, now we have a headline finally from the top. Uh, <laughs> Senator, who is it? I don't know. I, I mean, we have a great bench of people that are qualified to to run and to get elected. And um, I'm just I'm looking forward to, to talking with all of them. I, I'm not going to zero in on any one particular person right now. Uh, Chairman, you want to give me a name? Who yeah, helps I, you at I, the top of the ticket and, and it's going to be a challenging cycle? I, 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 I agree with Carol. I think we have a lot of a, a lot of you know, potential candidates out there. And I would agree, Judge Hidalgo, Judge, Judge Jenkins' name come up uh, for good reasons. They've been outstanding local leaders in times of, of crisis, mm -hmm. leading our two biggest counties in the state. I mean, that's what, talk about what executive uh, management should look like in a crisis that they both have demonstrated it. Um, but look, you know, uh, you know, Beto has built an amazing organization uh, that he, 
has has put to work to help Texans in need during this most recent uh, catastrophe in the winter storm uh, and continues to, to work for Texans. So uh, in, in, until he says he's not running, I think his, his name is, is definitely going to be near the top of anyone's list. So I think we have a lot of good possibilities. Let's see how the rest of the session plays out and see how the field shapes up. You've been listening to Point of Order, a proud member of the Texas Tribune's family of podcasts. Thanks to our guests, Chris Turner and Carol Alvarado. And thanks to the sponsors of this episode, Secure Democracy, the Keep Texas Trucking Coalition, Move Texas, Methodist Healthcare Ministries of South Texas, and Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas. Be sure to check out the Tribune's deep coverage of the 87th legislative session at texastribune.org. And if you like what you see there or hear here, tell your friends about us. Until next time, I'm Evan Smith.